Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 204. It's titled, Why Are Investment Returns So Low? This time of year, sort of early spring, when I was an institutional investment advisor, we always looked forward to the Nakubo Common Fund Study of Endowments, where it showed what the returns were on average for the 800-plus college endowments and foundations in the United States. It showed what the return was for the most recent fiscal year, which ended June 30th, and also longer-term returns. It breaks it down into the largest schools and middle-sized schools, sort of broke it down by assets. And I still like to look at it because I that was the business I was in. I discussed this back in this episode 180, Can You Outperform Harvard's Endowment? And since then, Common Fund and Nakubo have released a new study that goes through June 30th, 2017. And here's what's interesting. The 10-year annualized return for the average college endowment in the U.S. was 4.6%. Only 4.6%. That's down from the previous 10 years, ending June 30th, 2016, for that fiscal year, 5.0%. So think about that. Inflation over the 10 years on an annualized basis ending June 30th, 2017 was 1.6%. So the real return, the 4.6% nominal return, less inflation, was only 3%. The goal of an endowment in order to, to make sure that it's there for generations of, ahead is to make sure that real return at least equals its spending rate. The average endowment, college endowment, spent 4.6% of, I'm sorry, 4.4% of their assets in that fiscal year ending June 30th, 2017. You're spending 4.4% and you're only earning 3% net of inflation. The value of your portfolio is shrinking over time. And if those trends continue that will have a real impact on colleges' ability to, to, or endowments, the foundation to support the college's mission. John D. Walda, he's the president and chief executive officer of Nakubo, wrote in the press release with the study, here's his quote, continued substantial increases in endowment spending dollars despite lower long-term investment returns demonstrate the deep commitment colleges and universities have to student access and success. 
However, continued long-term growth of 5% or less, along with the coming changes to tax and charitable giving laws under the recently passed Tax Cuts and Job Act, will make it much more difficult for colleges and universities to increase endowment dollars to support their missions. Despite this year's higher returns, we remain concerned about the continued long-term results for most endowments. Catherine Keating, she's president and CEO of Common Fund, says the goal of achieving real returns to cover spending has been a daunting task for higher education for more than a decade, and we don't expect the challenge to get any easier. That's exactly what they're experiencing. Their real returns did not cover their spending in the most recent year and the year prior, and, and sounds like it's been a challenge for more than a decade. But it isn't just universities that are struggling with these low returns. Let's look at some other data. Here's an example. This is the Vanguard Retirement Fund 2030. It's a target date fund. Vanguard describes it This is as a single fund that adjusts its underlying asset mix over time. And so as you approach that 2030 sort of retirement, the, the amount of assets invested in fixed income or bonds in that fund goes up. But right now it's about 75% at, in stocks, 25% in bonds, and that's been creeping lower the allocations to stocks each year. That fund started June 7, 2006. The return since then, through March 31, 2018, has been 6.7%. So if we back out inflation over that time, about 1.7%, that's a 5% real return. So much better than what colleges have done at 3%, albeit the time frame is a little different. Here's some other data for perspective. There's a yearly book or, or tome that, that is published by Credit Suisse. It's called the Credit Suisse Global Investment Returns Yearbook. And it's put together by Elroy Dimson, Paul Marsh, and Mike Staunton. It's only available in hard copy, but there is a an electronic version that sort of summarizes the key data. It's a fascinating book. 23 countries, they compile data from 1900 to 2016. Well, actually through 2017 in, in this case. To U.S. and Canada, there are 10 countries from the Euro currency area, Austria, Belgium, Finland, France, Germany, Ireland, along with some others, some non-European markets, such as in Asia Pacific, Australia, China, Japan, New Zealand, South Africa, some non-Eurozone markets, Denmark, Norway, Russia, Sweden, Switzerland. So 23 countries, it comprises 91% of the investable universe for global investors. So it's, it's the most comprehensive database that we have. And they're showing global stocks on a real basis so after inflation from 2000 through 2017 have returned 2.9% and bonds have 4.9% real. So bonds sort of of the 17-year period 
have done better than stocks after adjusting for inflation. That's because interest rates have been falling. We've had two bear markets since 2009. But if we just assume a a sort of a 70-30 portfolio, that real return is 3.5%. So you earn 3.5% above inflation compared to that target date fund, which is around 5%, and and university endowments over a decade, 3%. Now, again, these are different time periods. What about longer term? Well, from 1900 through 2017, stocks returned 5.2% on a real basis. Bonds about 2% after adjusting for inflation. So a 70-30, 70-30, 70% stocks, 30% bond portfolio would have returned about 4.24%. Over the last 50 years, that 70-30 portfolio would have returned 5% real. Now, that's a global. So we had all those countries. The U.S. has done better. From 2000 to 2017, stocks have returned 35 percent real, so about a half percent more than, than global stocks. Bonds about the same. So a 70-30 portfolio from the year 2000 through the end of 2017 would have done about 4% real. From 1900 to 2017, stocks in the U.S. had a real return of 6.5%, the third best country in the world. Bonds returned 2%. After inflation, so total again five about five point two percent real for a seventy thirty portfolio, and, and that was about the same for the last fifty years. So just to summarize, then the real returns for stocks, so the return after inflation has been lower the past two decades, and it has been historically, and the U.S. has done better than the overall world. So since 1900, U.S. has returned 6.5% real for its stock market. The world ex-U.S. has returned 4.5%, and globally, including the U.S., has done 5.2%. The question is why? Why are returns lower now in the most recent decade, the most recent two decades, versus 50 years, or even 118 years, according to this data set. Well, here's what Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton say. There is a clear relationship between the current real interest rate and subsequent real returns for both equities and bonds. Regression analysis of real interest rates on real equity and bond returns confirm this, yielding highly significant coefficients. In other words, they did a statistical analysis and looked at current real rates or historic real rates. So a real rate, again, you have nominal rate for bonds and you back out inflation and that gets you the real rate inflation being the way that prices increase, a basket of good increase over time. So the real rate is is what you have to to sort of maintain that purchasing power. But there's a relationship. And the relationship is the, the lower the real rate today, 
or even going back five years, the lower the, the subsequent returns for both the stock and bond market. And they have a table. And again, I'm gonna, you, I'll link to the study. You can get it in the show notes. Or as a member of my free insider's guide, you have already gotten those links. I email them out right after I send the podcast along with a, an essay I do. So sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. It's free. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word insider to the number 44222. But in the study, they, they put together a graph. And you can see this relationship that when real rates are, are, are very high, then return. So the highest 5% of the time, going back from, this is from 1900 through 2017, when real rates were above 9.4%, the the real return for stocks over the next five years was 10.8%. And when real returns were negative, significantly negative, then the real return for stocks over the next five years was negative. Where are we today? Well, real rates currently, globally, are about zero. If we look at the the yield on the global bond aggregate, I guess would be the Bloomberg Barclays global bond aggregate, so that that includes some corporate bonds, so it's not just treasuries. That's yielding 2%. Inflation, about 2%. We're about zero. And some, we're we're probably negative. So U.S. real bond yields are 0.6% right now. Canada is zero. Germany's negative one. Japan's negative one. The U.K.'s negative 1.1. So many countries have negative real bond yields. U.S. is slightly positive. On average, globally, we're, we're zero to slightly negative. So when the real yield, according to this study by Dimson and his co-authors, when the real yield for bonds has been between negative 2.1 and 0.1, the real equity return over the next five years has been 4.4%. And if we assume 2% for inflation, let's assume 2%. That's an an expected nominal return for stocks over the next five years of 6.4%. If when we look at on money for the rest of us plus, generally speaking, that's that's kind of in line with the expectation for stocks over the next decade. Now, if bonds are yielding, let's say three percent, which you can get after fees with a Vanguard total bond market index fund, that means a seventy thirty portfolio would expect to return five point four percent or so over the next decade based on current low real rates. But the question is, wh- why? You know, what, what is it that drives real rates? If the return of stocks is higher when real rates are higher, the returns of bonds are higher when real rates are higher, what determines that? And why have Returns been so much lower. I mean, well, I'll tell you, the returns have been lower because that relationship is held. Again, we've had much lower returns for the stock market over the past two decades during a period when real interest rates have declined and are effectively zero. How do we get that 
that real rate higher. Can, can, can the central banks do that? Can they manipulate it so that we can get better stock returns so college endowments don't have to struggle as much? Before I answer that, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In episode 191, Has a Bond Bear Market Begun? We dissected interest rates. We sliced them up like an apple into different components. We looked at the nominal yield equals the, the real rate of interest, plus inflation expectations. So we looked at it that way. We looked at the nominal yield equals the expected path of future short-term rates. In other words, what the central bank's policy rate is expected to be going out into the future. So the nominal rate equals that, plus a term premium to compensate investors for unexpected inflation, or if short-term rates are higher than what is anticipated. And so we've looked at it that way. We didn't really look at, well, what is it that determines these real rates? Here's former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke in a post titled, Why Are Interest Rates So Low? He writes, 
But what matters most for the economy is the real or inflation-adjusted interest rate, which he describes as the market or nominal interest rate minus the inflation rate, which is what we've discussed. He goes on, the real interest rate is most relevant for capital investment decisions, for example. The decisions by businesses to invest in in projects, in factories, in, in new employees, in new initiatives. He continues, the Fed's ability to affect real rates of return, especially longer-term real rates, is transitory and limited. Except in the short run, real interest rates are determined by a wide range of economic factors, including prospects for economic growth, not by the Fed. So central banks are not in the, they don't have the ability to control the real rate of interest, especially longer term. They can, they can sort of set it short term based on whatever the policy rate is, but the longer term rate going out five or 10 years, they, they don't control that. What does? Well, and it is a meeting of, of market participants. It's savers who want to save and they will save more at higher interest rates. They're providing capital. They're savers. And then businesses want to borrow to invest in capital projects. And they will take on more investments as interest rates are lower. So the lower the rates, the more they'll want to borrow and invest in capital projects. And there's something called the equilibrium real interest rate. And that, that, that equilibrium real interest rate is sort of that intersection between the, the savers and the borrowers or the investors. And what the Federal Reserve does is try to set their policy rate, the short-term Fed funds rate, which right now is about 1.75% in terms of the, the U.S. Central Bank. It was essentially zero in 2015. They will probably raise that rate again in their June meeting to 2%. But they're estimating, they're, they're setting a policy rate based on what they believe the real equilibrium rate of interest should be to allow enough savings and borrowing so there's an equilibrium. And there's another paper by, it's titled Real Interest Rates Over the Long Run. It was written by Kei Mu Yi, who's a consultant, and Jing Zhang from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. It was titled Real Interest Rates Over the Long Run. I just said that. What they found is that in the absence of frictions, such as information asymmetry or restrictions on capital flows, that there ought to be a single real interest rate globally, a rate that clears global market for saving and investments, and that fundamental forces can change the global desired saving and the desired investment. So it will shift that that curve, those two curves, the, the savings curve, the investment curve that intersect supply and demand 
at that real interest rate. Ben Bernanke writes, if the Fed wants to see full employment of capital and labor resources, which of course it does, then its task amounts to using its influence over market interest rates to push those rates toward levels consistent with the equilibrium rate. Or more realistically, its best estimate of the equilibrium rate, which is not directly observable. If the Fed were to keep market rates persistently too high relative to the equilibrium rate, the economy would slow, perhaps falling into recession because capital investments and other long-lived purchases like consumer durables are unattractive when the cost of borrowing set by the Fed exceeds the potential return on those investments. Similarly, he goes on, if the Fed were to push market rates too low, below the levels consistent with the equilibrium rate, the economy would eventually overheat, leading to inflation. So the Fed is trying to set it But the real rate, the equilibrium, is determined by market forces. And when we think about that, because we've talked a lot about the national debt and and constraints, an additional supply of borrowing in terms of just the the fact that, and we've talked about how the the federal government can create money and, and that we don't have these constraints. But the reality is right now, the U.S. Treasury does issue bonds, which savers buy and invest for their savings. And so that is a supply that can influence these real rate of interest. Now, again, have Japan, which is heavily indebted, the real interest rate's negative, negative 1%. And there's been interesting trends. So the, the paper by Muyi, Kim Muyi, and Jing Zhang, they, they show, they, they reviewed and they looked at the data. And it shows that we had a, a persistent trend, a drop in the real rate of interest. In the 80s and really the 90s, the real rate of interest in the U.S. was over, when the 80s was over 2%. It fell below 2% in the 90s, but then it's dropped significantly. And as a result, I mean, it's effectively zero across the world. And in one theory is, and Ben Bernanke talked about this, is global savings glut. It's the idea that as more emerging economies have come on board, particularly like China, that have that high savings, that they, they want to save. And so we have an increase of savings. More savings, has, it means a more, more, essentially more supply has pushed down that real interest rate. Same time, if businesses just are, are afraid to invest, we've talked about that in the podcast, they're concerned about it. They're con- concerned about getting a, a rate of return high enough on those investments. They'd rather buy back stock. Then, then that means there's less willingness to borrow. And that has lowered the real rate of interest. And that's kind of where we're at. We're in a period where there's a lot of savings, not as much borrowing, low real rates across the world. And that has led to low stock returns, 
and low bond returns because stocks, there's a risk premium you get for investing in stocks, but that premium is above the real rate of interest. In their study, Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton conclude real interest rates remain low, they write, suggesting that the returns on all risky assets will be correspondingly lower over the next few years. Now, returns can deviate from the, the real interest rate. You know, these are, these are long-term relationships and linkages. But shorter term, they can deviate substantially. And we can have periods of, you know, one, one of the things in their study was this idea, well, how long is long? We can have really unlucky periods and, and, and periods that are, that are more beneficial or what they call more lucky. But I thought this was interesting in the study. Here's the longest run of cumulative negative real returns. For the world. It's gone 22 years. For 22 years at one period, in this case from 1910 to 1931, you had negative real returns for stocks globally. And, and collectively, the negative return was 8% over that time frame. In the US, 1905 to 1920, 16 years of negative real returns for stocks. France, 54 years of negative real returns for stocks from 1929 to 1982. Germany had 55 years from 1900 to 54, 1954. Dibson, Marsh, and Staunton write, to understand risk and return in capital markets, a key objective of the yearbook, we must examine periods much longer than 20 years. This is because stocks are volatile with major variation in year-to-year returns. We need very long time series to support inferences about stock returns. Our 118-year returns, which we document below, include several golden ages, as well as many bear markets, periods of great prosperity, as well as recessions, financial crises, and the Great Depression, periods of peace, and episodes of war. Very long histories are required in order to hopefully balance out the good luck with the bad luck so that we obtain a realistic understanding of what long-run returns can tell us about the future. And what they tell us about the future is that with real rates low, our expectations for stocks, houses, Bonds and other risk assets should be low, which means that we collectively need to save more because of the lower returns and spend less. College endowments are going to have to spend less than they have in the past in order to maintain, make sure that there's not spending more than the real return on their assets. And that that's, we can call it bad luck. I mean, call it a bad luck. We are in an unlucky period of very low real rates. It's unclear. Now, there have been periods when real rates have increased when there's just been more investment opportunities, a greater demand to borrow and invest and, and, and less savings, and that has, will allow for higher real rates. Hopefully, we'll get there. 
it's unclear if we will. And that's episode 204. You can get show notes, as I mentioned, at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not providing investment advice. Just simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>